Welcome to Season 3 of Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith. And ahead of a fabulous series with Yotam Otalengi and Easter Belfrage, Sabrina Gayor, James Strawbridge, Isabella Sutter, Trina Hahnemann, and many more, as this week is also the beginning of my virtual book tour for Taste and the TV Chef, How to Eat Save the Planet, I had to release the episode with eco-chef Tom Hunt to wet your whistles for some serious chat about how to save the planet through the way we eat. Animal agriculture is the most destructive thing on earth pretty much and it's it should be avoided at all costs and i think we've all got a responsibility to buy better meat more on the book tour later and how you can join in but tom hunt's route to fruit philosophy has made him the eco chef the king of sustainability in the food world check out the last episode in my podcast for leon how to eat to save the planet to hear more about his amazing restaurant Paco tapas in bristol which is a showcase of sustainable cuisine his new book eating for pleasure people and planet is written as a how-to guide to making the kind of choices that really are the answer in getting our climate balance right and he calls it his manifesto yeah that's basically what i've done um <laughs> it's taken pretty much 10 years but <laughs> i'm very proud of it well, when I came round to your house with Philip Limbury, uh, CEO of Compassion in World Farming, about two years ago, I think, and all over your house, all over your walls were lots of post-its with the ideas that have made it into the book. And I remember seeing the word manifesto on your hallway. <laughs> and I thought, that's a good word, because that's kind of what we need, isn't it? We need a mission. We need a manifesto to, to so that we're all really clear about what to do. Was that the idea behind it? Yeah, I wanted to write something that was really practical and user-friendly so that people could take all of this passion for sustainability and improving our planet and tune it into something. And what better to tune it through than food? Because food is one of the one of, if not the biggest impacts on our environment. Yeah, now we'll break that down. But why you? You're known as Eco Chef. Tell us a little bit about the background, your journey to getting to here, the king of sustainability. I, you know, through writing this book, I've realised that it's, it's always been a part of my life. Up until then, I would talk about the key moment with Tristram Stewart, where I was invited to feed 200 people using food waste, which was in 2010, when I coined this idea of root to fruit eating, which essentially became my manifesto, my sustainability philosophy. Um, but through writing the book, I realised that it's always been a part of my life through being vegetarian when I was very young working on an intensive pig farm um, learning about conventional animal agriculture in that way uh, and also living on a variety of different permaculture farms through my young adult life when I would often live in a yurt on on these farms whilst I was at university and working in exchange for my rent so I'd kind of mostly I'd be weeding and things like that but I'd also be picking up things about permaculture and other sustainability philosophies that have been around for really quite a long time. And we'll we'll drill down into some of those moments as we go through your four food moments but 
It's worth saying that Poco Tapas, your restaurant in Bristol, has won the Sustainable Restaurant Award for how many years now? Well, we've we've now been entered into the Hall of Fame, so we're no longer allowed to win it. Um, yeah, yeah. Beca- because it is exactly what we're talking about. Talk a little bit about some of the groundbreaking ideas you have, for example, about using only meat that is a byproduct. I found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, what Poco does is walk the walk. Our chef, Ian Clark, just proves that you can take all of my ideals and make them into a, a profit-making reality, even within a restaurant environment. And so we've taken steps around really every aspect of our business to improve the sustainability. But more recently, we've we've looked at improving our meat to the point where we believe that it's either carbon neutral or carbon positive through using meat products that would have otherwise been be wasted like one of our suppliers had an excess of chicken wings so we put that on our menu uh we'll we'll also use a lot of other culled animals like um squirrels not on the menu at the moment but it's something we consider putting on the menu if it was offered to us and it's something that i've served at my food waste banquets as well so it's it's having an open mind but pheasant is for example pheasant it comes from a shoot that the pheasants aren't always used to eat you bring them into the restaurant and turn them into something delicious you but nothing is actually killed for the pot no. Another really good example is crayfish, red signal crayfish, which we like to use because they are just kind of really an invasive species that is destroying our riverbeds and eating our, nat- uh, our native species that, that need eating. So we're really, you know, doing nature a favour by eating this. Um, I mean, I'm vegetarian, as you know, so it's not something that I eat personally, but it's something I advocate for. So let's drill down then into those four food moments. Your first is the chapter where you call upon us in, our, in your manifesto to know your farmer. You point out that there are four supermarket chains that control 80% of food retail We have become these kind of automatons. So many of us have lost connection with the land. And this is number one on your on your list. Know your farmer. Tell me about that. Well, I believe that it's really important to mend the connection that we have with our food and its origin. And that's easier said than done in our kind of urban environments but there are ways of doing it through going to farmers markets or even buying online because actually online uh community supported agricultural schemes veg boxes and things like that do allow you to get to know them a bit better often the better ones will provide you with a lot of information about how they're farming who they are what they do and if they're tend to be a good farm they'll be really happy for you to contact them and to chat about how they're producing their their fruit and vegetables so I felt like when I was writing the book it would be good to get some extra practical advice by visiting some different farms to see you know how sustainable 
or agroecological farming works in practice. And so one of the farms that I visited was Trill Farm and Ashley, um, the farmer there, took me around and showed me a lot of his different processes. And we in, we ended up actually shooting some of the book there too, mm. which was really good fun. They were incredibly welcoming and really inspiring people, like really just turning like the land, this land that wasn't necessarily very arable in the first place into this kind of nutritious, fertile soil, which pro- now produces this huge variety of beautiful produce. And how have they done that then, Tom? You talk about agroecology. It's a, a newish word. I mean, I'm sure many of them, the listeners to Cooking the Books will know it, but it is a really important addition to the kind of the food glossary, isn't it? Because, you know, the Soil Association, which governs organic produce, is very very stringent and you have to tick a lot of boxes before you can be certified organic and rightly so agroecology doesn't mean so many boxes have to be ticked can you explain why you think it's so important well like you said for some people organic certification doesn't make sense i i really uphold uphold and, and value the soil association and i trust them as a third party to audit a, diff- a farm thoroughly so that I know exactly how that food's been grown and that's really important however what's more important is that farming becomes sustainable in general can and that conventional farms start to convert more towards this agroecological path so that they can start working more in harmony with nature rather than against it it takes a long time basically to make a soil organic it takes less time with agroecology it is about more working with nature to avoid using pesticides to fertilize the land naturally yeah so it's essentially farming in harmony with nature rather than against it so an agroecological farmer may even use a little bit of pesticides or fertilizers here and there if they feel like they have to, but their goal is really about improving the quality of the soil, like organic agriculture. So, in, but in order to do that, you don't want to be using fertilizers and pesticides because they destroy the quality of your soil. Yeah. So, through using more natural methods of like applying compost and no till farming and all these Crop kind rotation. of more tra- actually more traditional methods of farming, you can produce really high yields and very high quality products. Yeah. And crop rotation is one of those very natural, very traditional methods of farming. People have been using it since the 1600s um, and, and it only stopped because of our obsession with monoculture, which is used largely to feed intensively farmed meat. Yeah, I mean... Animal agriculture is the most destructive thing on earth, pretty much. And it's it should be avoided at all costs. And I think we've all got a responsibility to buy better meat. Now, that doesn't have to mean we have to spend more. We can choose cheaper cuts and follow the nose to tail philosophy. Um, but I think as a restaurant or as a business, you have even more responsibility. You think of the kind of number of meals that you're serving and, and the meat 
and the impact that has. Yeah. Um, the impact that has on your clientele as well. People come to you because it's a cool, fantastic, beautiful restaurant in Bristol. It's got a really good rep and it attracts a certain kind of cool crowd uh, who are there for the right reasons. But actually, you've got a really fantastic opportunity there to tell your story. And you do uh, through food, through cool food. That's a wonderful way of influencing people to change their consumption behaviour. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of value in sharing, you know, how we're doing things in a really open and transparent way, because so often businesses are a, a greenwash in a sense by kind of stating how brilliant they are, how their food is sub- kind of purchased locally, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, it's really important to communicate the detail of how you're doing well, you know, these sustainable approaches. It segues very naturally into your second food moment, which is all about meat and dairy. Um, interestingly, you say that factory farmed meat uses so many resources, um, you know, water, land, rainforest. 20% of that is wasted. The production of that meat, you write, produces at least 6 million tonnes of carbon dioxide, not counting the emissions produced by its disposal. It's crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? You come up with the same answer as I do, less but better. I know you're a vegetarian, but in terms of a restaurant, it's about eating less but better. What percentage does meat play on the menu? Okay, so at the moment we've had to change the menu because of COVID-19. We're closed at the moment and we're acting as a takeaway. But under usual operations and when we reopen, we keep the meat on the menu under 25%. Yeah. So most of the dishes are actually plant-based. And we also organise the menu so that the plant-based dishes come first. And that makes a difference depending on how people order. So let's go to your second food moment. Um, You worked on a pig farm. Now, this was a real big moment in your life. It, It really has influenced the way that you feel about meat. Take us through that. You describe it beautifully on the page, but take us through that. Yeah, when I was 14, my first job was on an intensive pig farm and I had to cycle a couple of miles every day through the kind of rain to work on this farm. And it was it was really quite horrendous, to be honest. Um, But it brought in a few a few pounds of pocket money that I'd save up and and spend on whatever I needed to. I think maybe it even helped me save up for my first car. Um, But it. It was an intensive pig farm just with a number of sheds housing hundreds of small pigs that we'd help begin to fatten up before sending off for them to be kind of final, finally fattened and, and killed. Um, but my main job was pushing around the slops. It, it's not glamorous. Um, I'd be carrying the food, uh, which was tended to be yeah un- unidentifiable pellets of something or other, probably laced with antibiotics and who's who knows what um and there yeah there's kind of far grimmer stories i could tell you i think we we've got the idea there um it is important to kind of get that close and personal i wonder if anybody ever who's ever worked in an intensive meat factory of any sort ever eats meat again did you become vegetarian then yeah so i was vegetarian for the two years whilst i was working at the farm but I began eating eating meat again just because I, I loved it and I still do actually. It's it's kind of hard for me to be vegetarian because I do really enjoy meat. Um, but what's interesting is that 
a number of years later when I was working at River Cottage, I had some like serious jobs like butchering a whole deer on a Sunday or on pig in a day. I'd have to take the pig's head at the beginning of the day, split it in half, shave any hair off and then put it in the pot for boiling to make brawn. Now, even though I was dealing with that, you know, quite hardcore process, I was still eating the meat because it was really good and we knew where it came from. And that's really important, isn't it? My feeling is that I'm very into supporting high welfare animal farming uh, as part of that less but better. You do explain that and, and why it's good for the soil. It's something that rattles on in this debate between, you know, veganism, vegetarianism, flexitarianism and omnivorism. Can you explain why animals do have a place in British farming, in global farming? Okay, so I take, I guess what I'm trying to do with with my writing book and restaurant is set an example for best practice. So there's many different ways of approaching animal farming but I believe within the very best practice it's part of a polycultural system that is in so the animals are integrated with plants so the plants um and are are part of a rotation with animals too so an area of land is allowed to go fallow and left to rest for a year, two years, whilst livestock are um, allowed to graze on that land. And what will happen is that they will fertilise the land and it will naturally rehabilitate and become ready to grow more plants because it'll be holding a lot of nitrogen from, from the animals. Um, but and, and biodynamic farming is a very good example of that because biodynamics really value animal inputs. I went to visit... Um, a fruit farm down south and Steen Leander who, who's the farmer there he actually found that once he brought chickens onto the land and allowed them to run through his orchards he no longer had a pest problem he didn't even have to spray with biodynamic preparations which are purely compost teas of different herbs no chemicals to be found in sight but he found that just simply having that integration of livestock within the plants really helped. And I think when it's done properly, it's great. But also, I think it's worth, on a side note, it can be done without animals too. There is an argument that it's, you know, animals are necessary. And it's true, it does replace some chemical fertilisers, but it it's also possible to farm without animals as on Tollhurst Farm, which is kind of like that vegan closed-loop farming. Yes, and people might have seen uh, George Monbiot's Apocalypse Cow, which featured Tollhurst Farm, and it is they do use fertility-building crops and plant composts to regenerate the soil, don't they? There's very few farms doing this at the moment, but we could be encouraging a lot more farming in this particular way for the future. And that's part of your manifesto, isn't it? To try and understand a little bit more about it so that we can make those choices and encourage farmers to do what's really quite quite difficult for them yeah yeah i mean i think we're getting to a point aren't we a tipping point where we're going to be forced to make these changes and some of the bigger 
kind of food corporations are realizing this and looking to improve the sustainability and trying to learn from these smaller agroecological farms so there is change happening it's it's not obviously it's never happening fast enough but the the closer we get to the precipice we're moving towards hopefully the quicker we'll have to change Exactly. And and it's important to say it's not just about carbon emissions, which are the, the greenhouse gases, which are the sort of the big headline news, but it's about soil fertility. If we haven't got the soil to grow our food, we haven't got the means to feed our people. Um, and, you know, that's really important. And you use those sustainable development goals that the United Nations set out that we don't hear often enough. We hear about them amongst the campaign groups like Compassion and World Farming. Those sustainable development goals form your manifesto, don't they? Just give us some of the bottom line stuff. The sustainable development goals are 17 goals that were set out by the UN in 2015 that we have to achieve by 2030. And they cover all aspects of life from, well, Zero Hunger, Sustainable Development Goal 2, which I am part of the advocacy hub for with the Chef's Manifesto. We run a podcast and a hub for chefs that can get together and learn how they can all improve the sustainable, like their own practices to feed back into the Sustainable Development Goals. And um, when it comes down to it, you know, the, maybe the reason we haven't heard them as much as we should have is because it, you're right, it is part of the third sector and the charity world more than it is in everyone's everyday vocabulary. But it's all things that we should be doing and should be able to hear more about. So, yeah, I've tried to kind of that's what I've done with my manifesto, really, is kind of convert all of that knowledge that academic knowledge from those organizations into something really very kind of practical and simple through points like eat for pleasure eat whole foods eat the best food you can know your farmer as we spoke about support biodiversity and all these other kind of points that tap into that um really yeah. And it's important, I think, that, you know, to mention the mass, that it's only a tiny part of the manifesto at the front of the book, the rest of delicious recipes of how actually to put that into practice. But one of the things that, you know, the recipes show you how to use spelt, for example, I've got a box of spelt, which has been in my cupboard for two years, and I've been looking at it and wondering how best to use it. And, <laughs> and you make the point that it's a rotation crop. You know, we need to be farming spelt, we need to give farmers a reason to grow spelt, because it's a rotation crop if we start using rotation crops that we don't have to use pesticides as much it's as simple as that isn't it yeah so the root to fruit kind of philosophy isn't just about eating the whole vegetable from root to fruit it's about eating everything that the farm or farmer can supply us with from root to fruit because it's really that diversity of and wealth of wonderful produce that are involved within a good crop rotation and, and and real farm a biodiverse farm that we can tap into and enjoy as part of our everyday cooking because at the end of the day a whole food diet is a flavorful diet and it's yeah one that allows us to explore all of these different interesting grains like spelt emery einkorn and kamut and really kind of change our cooking and step it up a notch and it's it doesn't, I mean, now I, I use spelt as a default 
rather than regular kind of wheat flour or I'll, I'll kind of grab the Emma wheat or whatever. And these grains are inherently more sustainable because no matter whether they're organic or not, because wheat is, uh, yeah, this kind of generified crop that does tend to need a lot of water, fertilizer and pesticides because it's so modified. Whereas these, some people call them ancient grains, like spelt and emma wheat, need much less of that because they tend to be much hardier crops. And so they, they can't, you know, simply a, a pest can't eat through the kind of hardier exterior. You've chosen a recipe for your third food moment. It's burnt tomatoes studded with garlic and oregano. And you talk about getting your hands dirty here. That moment at Ballymaloo Lit Fest in Cork with you and Alia Hercules, who's also been on this uh, series. Tell us about that moment. We're getting up and going out into the land at five o'clock in the morning when the dew is still fresh on the grass. Well, Olia Hercules and I heard that Francis Mormon was going to be lighting his fire at, at daybreak, at dawn. And so we thought, wow. I mean, we were both yeah, enamoured with his his cooking style and decided to invite ourselves and get up and join and help out. And luckily you know he was very welcoming and we both ended up cooking with him for the next 12 hours from from dawn helping um helping stoke the fire and cook all of these really eccentric and wonderful dishes i mean many of you will know his cooking but he had a yeah kind of circular fire pit with a hot with without any fire in the middle and then this cage over the top which he hangs all sorts of things from mainly huge chunks of meat but also you know often pineapples and and cabbages and and different vegetables as well and then they're kind of slowly smoked and roasted in the center for a number of hours um but he also had an eight foot plancher or kind of solid top that he'd made out of just this he must must have ordered an eight by four sheet of like five no probably 12 mil thick steel that he'd placed on some bricks and was feeding with logs and uh, to kind of feed the fire underneath and then made yeah kind of six foot wide drop scone pancake um with caramelized apples on and oh before that he he made this these wonderful potatoes which he boils, so they're like roasted potatoes, but on a on a barbecue. So he boils them up and then squashes them onto the plancher. So they flatten on one side and then he keeps the temperature at exactly the right degree so that they slowly crisp and caramelise and roast into this incredible mm. kind of crunchy layer. And they're phenomenally delicious. Mm. Yeah, I've been doing that my potatoes that way, but in the oven after Sky McAlpine's husband uh, recommended that in her latest book, Table for Friends. Same sort of thing, but but except that you're talking about outside cooking. There's something about outside cooking that really uh, is is beautifully paired with high quality uh, vegetables and meat. There's something that kind of demands the highest quality of the ingredients with outside cooking. I suppose it's because it's straight from the land. 
Yeah, although <laughs> I'd have to disagree. Like most of my kind of younger, my childhood days and student days were visiting barbecues and cringing at the quality of meat that people would pull out, <laughs> you know, just, you know, marinated yeah, Chinese like ribs from Tesco or some like supermarket that were just like completely toxic and just inedible um but delicious because they're so sweet and salty um but yeah you're right I agree in that sense like for you know it really is an opportunity because it's real cooking and it's very simple yeah so you know whenever you're cooking simply you're reliant on the produce and it being of a good quality. So the the recipe that we're talking about now, burnt tomato studded with garlic and oregano, was one of the first dishes we made that morning. So we were at Ballymaloo. Obviously, there's incredible produce there. And we had these huge tomatoes that we cut in half and then put little slits in like a giga of lamb and stuffed with slices of garlic and oregano before placing on the plancha to blacken completely underneath and again it was at just the right temperature that it would just kind of burn intentionally slowly just to create this kind of very interesting kind of bitter flavor (laughs) without completely just demolishing the tomato into a molten mess so then they'd be carefully removed and then they were kind of at this kind of perfect level of of cooking that meant they were just absolutely delicious and there's something about those burnt flavors in, in the right ratio with a interesting and sweet and flavorful ingredient like those tomatoes that just works i mean i used to before that moment i would have thought god that's really burnt but actually once you try it it's totally and utterly delicious yeah it's it's slow food that you're talking about and and for your fourth food moment well you it's it's another recipe it's hemp milk panna cotta but you take the opportunity to really talk about your relationship with slow food and the slow food association slow food are another organization that came about in the late 80s uh as a yeah to combat the kind of fast food industry really Carlo Petrini set up a protest in his home hometown Bra to protest the first McDonald's in their in their town and it launched the Slow Food organization which now runs a biannual festival called Terra Madre in Turin which I go to every other year and have done for the last 8 years and it's it's a phenomenal um meeting of people from all around the world who are mostly really agroecological farmers from, yeah, different indigenous tribes to, yeah, people and chefs from Britain like me, all kind of getting together to talk about how we, we really need to kind of tackle the fast food industry, but, you know, in in the most general sense, like as in the conventional food system, which which really is a fast food system. One of the the arguments in this big debate about how we can eat to save the planet is money and access to food. I do a lot of work with the Food Foundation telling stories from the front line of food poverty. I'm not going to chat to them about the slow food movement. Um, how do you communicate that message to, to the vast 
majority of the world, not just this country. Actually, the vast majority of the world are really concerned about the environment and eating good food. I think often it's, yeah, I mean, there's also this kind of like fast food culture and there is a great section of society in Britain and elsewhere that can't even afford good vegetables. And that, I think, is an issue of poverty rather than um, an issue of food being too expensive and needing to be cheaper. Actually, a whole food plant-based diet or at least plant-focused diet, is by far the cheapest way you can eat. Other than if you're, you, can li- you can't afford fruit and vegetables and you have to eat highly processed food, then that's, that's a real issue and something that has to be tackled and that, you know, at ground zero is being tackled through food banks. But really, that's a sad state of affairs and shouldn't need to be happening. So... I think for those of us that can afford fresh fruit and vegetables, then we really can afford to eat sustainably. And I think there's an interesting kind of thirst for more knowledge about how we can do that. I wonder if it is, as some people say, a trickle down effect. You know, the big changes always happen with everything from smoking, for example, drinking, drink and driving always happens with the vast middle class. And then it sort of trickles down. Culture changes with the masses, which are now the kind of the middle class. So that when you go around to have dinner with people, you, you kind of expect now that either there's going to be a plant based diet on the table or that the meat is going to be high welfare. Do you, do you feel that that's the kind of norm? That is that becoming the norm now? And the- so there has been an increase in kind of the sales of free range and organic meat over the last few years, but there's also been a massive increase in intensive agriculture, even in the UK, um, and now at least ninety five percent of the meat that we eat in the UK, it's either seventy five or ninety five percent, comes from intensive animal agriculture so it's this kind of there's a there's a paradox there and there's you know are people just buying the better quality meat when they have to create a a dinner party for their friends and or yeah i mean i think you know often when we eat out we might assume that it's higher quality when it isn't even in even in some of the better pubs and restaurants that we might be eating in so it's always really important to ask but i mean i think just it's worth saying as well that i think actually i've taken a lot of the inspiration for the recipes from my book from peasant culture and peasant farming culture much of these recipes are kind of the recipes of yesteryear, but they're also practised and eaten greatly across the world by that kind of peasant culture that can't necessarily afford meat. I mean, as kind of conventional Western food ideals and cheap meat becomes more available throughout the world, that, you know, increases its consumption but there's still that in many parts of the world, even as close as France, Spain, and Italy, that more traditional kind of way of eating that's still practiced, that means consuming more plants, more offal and, 
you know, the fifth quarter of the animal and, and these other dishes. So you're right, it is a really difficult subject to navigate, especially as a person of privilege. Um, and But it's what I think it's important to kind of discuss it and learn about it too. Well, it's it's absolutely vital. We have to get that message out there. It's it's actually very simple. As you said, it is eating really delicious, mainly plant based food that comes from uh, soil that hasn't been drenched with pesticides and to be inventive with cooking and to teach cooking to the under five so that they fall in love with food. And we grow a, a, a new nation. Who, which really wants to get back in touch with its food uh, to live a healthy life in a, on a healthy planet. How simple is that? I mean, when you put that manifesto out there, are you feeling optimistic that people will, will run with it? I'm feeling really optimistic. The book has already had a massive impact. Um, and I've just had uh, so many wonderful people feeding back about the recipes and the ideas and how it's literally been able to change their whole approach to food which is you know as a food writer one of the most rewarding things you could do or the most rewarding things you could hear about your your writing and recipes because that's our intention isn't it it's about sharing the wealth of knowledge that we've managed to accumulate through living in food and agriculture for the last kind of 20 years into this distilled and kind of practical uh, and hopefully inspiring way to cook and eat and live. It is just that. Thank you so much, Tom. And, you know, more than most books, I wish you all the best with it because it really could save the planet. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julie. Thanks for listening to Cooking the Books. Please rate, review and subscribe and check my website, julliesmith.com or my Instagram bio at foodjulliesmith for news of the free webinars and videos on some of the themes in my book, Taste and the TV Chef, how storytelling can save the planet. And do join me next week when Yotam Ottolenghi and Isabel Farage will be telling us about their new book, Flavour.